0: As I was preparing uh, this sermon, it's always imperative for a pastor to give an introduction that connects the, uh, the text to our lives in real time, and as I was thinking, uh, way back in the recesses of my mind, a TV show that I have not watched since I was probably in high school came to my mind, and it was the TV show Undercover Boss. You ever watch Undercover Boss? You're going to know exactly where we're going here. And if you don't, it's okay. It'll be super quick, super simple. You're not going to lose anything by not ever watching Undercover Boss. So I was watching one episode just to joggle my memory of Undercover Boss and what I saw when I was watching Undercover Boss is what happens is a CEO of a company like McDonald's or Chick-fil-A or hopefully not Chick-fil-A because this is a bad introduction uh, or like Taco Bell or you know something. One of those restaurants, they will come in as a Uh, employee in training. So just kind of like a new person has no idea about the restaurant, no idea about business and life within the industry. And this uh, CEO, or we're going to call them the employee in training, comes in and introduces themselves to the store manager. And the job for the store manager is to go around and show the employee in training how life and work is done in this particular restaurant. And their job is just to go through there and say, hey, here's the kitchen. Here's how this works. Here's how we interact with the guests. Here are some things that we do at our company, like we say, my pleasure, or we always say the customer is first. They do those things. They're teaching them store and company culture. It was always a good thing for a store manager to do to an employee in training. But this particular episode, uh, the store manager was just terrible. And this undercover or boss, or the undercover boss, the employee of the store, came in uh, and introduced himself as a store manager. And the store manager was like, okay, here's the first thing customers are just terrible. They're, all, they're selfish, they're all about themselves, uh, and they're just not nice. And I just don't like them, they're terrible. And the CEO, the person in training says, okay, all right, they're going to keep going. And and then the the store manager goes around and says, you know what, Uh, the worst are kids and old people. Kids and old people are terrible because they, they don't know what to order. They don't speak clearly, and I just hate them. They're the worst. And it's like, okay. And he keeps going, and the CEO is just aghast at what he, she's realizing uh, that the store manager is saying about the same company that she oversees. And it gets worse because then he starts talking about the other employees and how terrible they are and how he wishes that he didn't have to work here and all of these things. Uh, and you can see where this is going. By the end of the episode, uh, they're both standing outside the store, and the CEO or the employee in training kind of takes the mask off and says, I'm actually not an employee in training. I'm actually the CEO of this company. And you can imagine the look on this uh, store manager's face, and he said, oh, I said a lot of bad things. A lot of things that I shouldn't have said. And, uh, and sure enough, he got fired. He got let go because of his bad attitude and, and the way that he lived, not realizing who was standing right in front of him. Now, uh, I wonder if when Jesus comes back, not as the baby in the manger, right? not as the man of Galilee, not as, not as somebody who looks like me and you, but when he comes back as he truly is, that is, sovereign Lord of the universe, if when he comes back, there's going to be people, and even Christians, who look and say, Ooh, that, that, was, that's, that was who that was? Like, that, that's the guy who, who you're, the, you're the CEO of the universe? I just thought you were just some, you know, uh, God in training. I just thought you were just this guy who tried to save us from some bad things that happened to us. I didn't know you were that guy. I didn't know you were the guy who created all things. I didn't know you were the guy that upheld the universe by the word of your power. You're that guy? And as we talk about regularly, like Matthew 7, there's going to be a lot of people that say, Lord, Lord. Right? A lot of people who said, oh, I knew him. But did you know him? Did you know that that man that was standing there in, at the Sea of Galilee, and that man who was crucified on the cross, is he the Lord of the universe to you? Or is he just another man and another good teacher? As I prepared this sermon this week, I was burdened. I was burdened so much uh, that I began praying for you guys and myself and, and all people who don't know Christ as their Lord. And my prayer this morning is that you're going to grow confident in Christ through this message. You're going to grow confident in Him because so many of us, as we grow up in church, we've grown up with, with Christian families, we have been impressed upon that He's our Savior, He's our Savior, He's our Savior, but yet you've lost the edge of understanding that he is, he is our Savior. He's our blessed Savior. He's the reason that we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. But so much of us, so many of us, has forgotten that He is not only our savior but he is the sovereign lord of the universe he's not just savior he's lord Kyrios in the greek that means he's transcendent he is above all things and in him all things hold together and it is that lord of the cosmic christ of the whole universe that is also your personal lord and savior and so this morning if you're a christian uh you must trust in christ not only as your savior which so many of us have and so many of us have confessed that. But it's time that we trust in Christ not only as our Savior, but as our Lord. Our Lord, that He is sovereign, that He is under control of everything that's going on in our lives. And I would find you this morning, if you said, you know what, I've trusted in Christ as my Savior, but never as my Lord, I would would have to challenge you to say, have you ever trusted in Christ at all if He isn't first your Lord? Because what we have to understand about Christ, if we know him well enough, we need to know before he is Savior, he is at least Lord. Because he's not just Lord of the saved, he's Lord of the universe. He's Lord of everything and everybody. And so if I call myself a Christian, but yet I don't live underneath the headship of Christ as the Lord of the universe, I have to ask myself, if, he's not, if I don't even see him as the Lord of the universe, do, is he truly my Savior of my soul? And I want us to make sure this morning that we have a very clear picture of who Christ is, not only in your personal life, but in the world and in the universe as a whole. And that's exactly what Paul wants us to do, too. Because remember, in the book of Colossians, Paul is trying to, to fight the Colossian heresies there in Colossae because everyone is trying to say this, Jesus is great, but he's not all that great. Right? Jesus is good, but he's not all that is good. And so this problem that the Colossians were dealing with is, is Christ really sufficient? Right? And, and that could be a question you're asking too because so many of you in here are willing to say Christ is good enough for, to save me. Right? Christ is good enough to save me but he's not good enough to, uh, to recount and require all submission. He's not, he's not sovereign enough, and he's not God enough, and he's not all that to require all of my obedience and all of my admiration and all authority in the universe. Not only in your life, but all the particles in the world respond and submit to Christ Jesus our Lord. And Paul is trying to do the same thing here in Colossians 1, 15 through 17. And I'll show you real quick before we jump into the text uh, verse by verse. I want you to look here in the first, uh, these three verses, verses 15 through 17. And I want you to do something. I did this last week with the 9 o'clock, and you guys are the 9 o'clock, so you remember. Uh, I want you to pay attention to how many times Paul says the word all. Okay, look, right there in verse 15. He is the firstborn of most creation. No, no, he's the firstborn of all creation. Again, Paul is describing the supremacy of Jesus when he uses the word all. And I want you to circle that word all. Verse 15, he's the firstborn of all creation. Not some of it, not most of it, all of it. Now verse 16, look at that. For by him uh, some of the things were created. Is that what it says? No, it says that by him all... All things were created in heaven and earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, or rulers and authorities. I think that about does it, doesn't it? That's about everything that you can think of, all in one sentence. Now, again, at the end of verse sixteen, look at that. All things were created through him and for him. All things, not some things, not most things, not me, not me, but not you. All things. All things were created for him. In verse seventeen, he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. So if you were wondering, what is Paul trying to get us to understand? Because there's a lot of lofty language here. And there's a lot of phrases and there's a lot of sentences that I can't wrap my mind around. Well, I can say this for sure, that when Paul is writing these verses to the Colossians, he's saying, listen, Jesus is all you need. Jesus is more than you need because he's all sufficient. You don't need these other gods in your life. That's what he's telling the Colossians. You don't need these other things to be sufficient In Christ, because Christ in Himself is all things; He holds all things together. And this morning, some of you need to hear that. And maybe you don't have carved images in your house, but maybe you do. Like maybe you have these. Maybe you have carved images in the in the form of relationships. Or addictions, or uh, yourself. Maybe you're the center of your universe. This is what I tell people in my ca- who I counsel with. Like, there's a difference uh, in saying, "Okay, I don't have a carved image," but yet you are sitting on the own throne of your life. Like, so whatever is requiring your attention, your finances, your your desires, and your passion—that is that thing in which is God to you. And so, it's imperative for all of us when Jesus is our Savior, He's also our Lord, and the only thing that that needs to be on the throne of our life, the only thing that has to be on the throne of our lives when Christ is our Savior is Christ alone, because He is all things. He is all the things I need. He is sufficient in all things. In Him, all things hold hold together. So it's not Jesus plus my sports, or Jesus plus my job, or Jesus plus my spouse, or Jesus plus all the other things I like to do. It's Christ alone. And in Him, all things hold together. But now what I want to do is I want to zoom in, and I want to bring the magnificence of Christ our Lord into focus one phrase at a time. So I want you to follow along with me one phrase at a time. The first one is in verse 15, the first part of it. It says there that he is the image of the invisible God. Now, we have been given a disservice in our society and in our culture because we have phones and cameras, and we have there's a camera on every piece of technology that we own now, and so when we see the word image here, we have this idea that, oh, there's an image, there's an image, you walk into your house, there's pictures and images all over your house of things, okay? And so when you read this, you can say, oh, okay, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's this, uh, yeah, he's kind of like this, this uh, representation of him, like, oh, he's a picture, okay? And, and i put it to you this way, uh, it would be like me going to Yosemite, okay, uh, you would think when I say, hey, I want to show you an image of Yosemite in this particular uh, word, you would think it'd be like me saying, I'm going to picture of it, I'm going to take a picture of it, I'm going to bring it to you, and I'm going to show it to you. That's not what this word means in the Greek. In the Greek, this word is more like me saying, let me, let me go, let me go get Yosemite and let me bring it to you, okay, because what this word in the Greek means is it's the manifestation of this thing, And so when this in the Greek is saying image, he's saying that God was manifested to humanity in the man Christ Jesus. We're not talking about a picture here. We're not talking about a mere sculpture of God. We're saying that God was made manifest, and this image here isn't a picture or some half-baked version of God. This is the exact manifestation of God in the flesh. You see, and there's a difference because we often look at, look at Christ on earth kind of like us, right? Like, yeah, you know, Jesus was like me. He was my homeboy from Galilee. You know, that's, that's who Jesus was. Uh, but I want to explain to you a difference between who Christ is and who we are. And you can find part of it, and you don't have to flip there, but jot down Genesis 1. You can find it in part, verse 27. Uh, it says that, Genesis 1 says that we were made in the image of God. You see that? We were made in the image of God. It is as if God is there and God is fashioning us according to his image. Okay, that's, that's us. So we are made in the image of God. But here in Colossians, it says that Jesus is the image of God. You see, we were created recreated in the image of God. This in Colossians says that he is the image of God. He is the manifestation, the exact representation, the exact imprint, according to the book of Hebrews, as God and so what we cannot get away with is trying to give Christ a little bit of deity and a lot of humanity. Okay? We have to make sure that Christ is the God of the universe. There is no half God. He's not Hercules. He's not one of those Greek half gods. He is God in the flesh, been manifested to us, clothed in humanity, but still all the time he is fully God. Now, if you have a hard time wrapping your mind around that, you're not the first You're not the first group of people in history. As a matter of fact, in the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D., all the best scholars and church fathers in the world got together and said, you know what, there's a lot of people confused about this. There's a lot of people creating heresies about this, so let's get this straight so we can make sure that people don't say something about Jesus that is not true. And here's what they came up with. They came up with a word that describes who Christ is in relation to God the Father. And it is the word homoousius. Homo usius. Homo, which means the same, and usius is essence. So he is the same essence as God, right? The same essence, the same thing, right? When you see Christ, you see God, right? Not like when you see me, you see something like my dad. No, 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 no. It would be like when you look at me, I'm my dad, okay? And you can't do that because that's not how we work. Ontologically, my existential reality isn't that I'm dad, I'm Hayden, Okay, But when you look at God the Son, when you look at Him, you are looking at full God. And we have to look at Him that way because that is Him as He truly is. What that means is, when you do this, and it's point number one, you need to revere Jesus as God of the universe. You need to revere, that means respect, admire, exalt Jesus as God of the universe. I'm going to give you two scriptures, and I want you to flip to these, and I want you to write them down because this is going to be good for you. It's going to be good for your children. It's going to be good for any of your Mormon friends or your Jehovah Witness friends who want to say Jesus is not God. The first one is found in John 1. You know this one, John 1. Flip there real quick in your Bible. Go to John 1. We're going to to look at verses 1 through 2, and then we're going to skip down to verse 14 because I don't have time to read the other 10 verses. John 1, 1 through 2. The Apostle John says this at the very beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ according to John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. You see that? And what is the objection going to be? Well, we don't know what the logos is. What's the word here? No one knows what the word is. Does it doesn't say Jesus, does it? Okay, great. Verse 14. And then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory glory as of the only Son. From the Father, full of grace and full of truth. There's so much to say about this. Like the word "Son" in verse 14 is monogenous, uh, which is the same representation I was telling you earlier. When when Jesus is here on Earth, He's monogenous, right? One gene, right? He's not He's not 13 from here, 13 from here, some genes for there, from some genes here. He is all the genes of God, the Father, the genes. So when you look at God, you look at you're looking at the Son. When you're looking at the Son, you're looking at God. Are they the same person? No. Three persons, one essence. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. We're talking about the Trinity, but in essence, they are one. Yeah, okay. If you could explain the Trinity, if you could fathom the riches and the glories of God, he wouldn't be God, would he? There is mystery to the Trinity, but it should exalt our worship, not diminish our worship, right? Now, that's not even my main point here. What we have to figure out is, what does the word mean? Well, the best thing to do is when we try to find the word word, we need to go somewhere, hopefully with the same author. This is what you would do in any literary endeavor when you want to say, what does this person mean? Well, you might well go to some of their other works, right? If you're uh, like Shakespeare, you might go over here to say, well, he uses that word a lot, but what does he mean? Well, let's flip to this book and see if he uses that word over there. Well, let's do that here in the Bible. Flip over to Revelation 19. Same writer, the Apostle John's writing the same same writer writing now the book of Revelation, verse, chapter 19. So we have this word that became flesh, which really narrows it down. I don't know a lot of any things that just came, became flesh and dwelt among us. But to narrow that down a little bit more for your Mormon friends and your Jehovah Witness friends and all your friends who deny the deity of Christ, Revelation 19, 11 through 13, and then we'll flip down to 16. Revelation 19, 11. And then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse... The one sitting on it called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes wars. I think we're narrowing it down pretty good so far. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Verse 13. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Verse 16. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, and it's King of kings and Lord of lords. And so if you ever wonder who the Bible is talking about in John 1, 1 through 2, we can see that we're talking about the faithful and true, the righteous judge who makes wars, one whose eyes are like the flames of fire. He's the King of kings, and he is the Lord of lords, and he is called the Word of God, and it is Jesus Christ. This is the God that is both your personal Savior and the Lord God of the universe. And we have to revere Jesus as God, and it takes scriptures like this, and it takes you and I making sure that we understand God's word in order to say he is not just the man from Galilee. He's not just this man born of a virgin. He's not just the, the, the carpenter's son. I mean, this is God Almighty of the universe who makes war and judges in righteousness And he is on his thigh. He has the names written: King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is the God that we're talking about here. I want you to put it this way: If Jesus says it, God said it. Right? And I want you to to see that because so many times in our culture, uh, we're trying to twist all the things that is said in the gospel. Well, did he really mean it that way? Or did is is that really the right English word from the Greek word? I mean, you know, there's a lot of people have questions if that's the same Greek word. Listen, when we see it in Scripture. And we see that Jesus Christ gave the 12 apostles. He commissioned the 12 apostles to take the gospel into the nations. He, through the Spirit, gave it to them at Pentecost and said, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to be my tellers. You're going to go out there and you're going to share the gospel and you're going to write the New Testament. And you're going to do it according to the things that I've taught you and the things that I will reveal to you. And so when the apostles had written the New Testament, when Jesus is represented in the Gospels by the apostles and by Luke, we're going to see a great representation of exactly what Jesus said and what he wants you and I to know. And so when the Bible says it, God said it. And when Christ said it, God said it. And so when I listen to the Bible, when I hear the Bible preached and the Bible tells me to do something, I'm going to do it because Jesus is Lord of the universe. Because Jesus is God, fully God, and we need to revere Jesus as God. There's a lot to say here, but what I'm going to do for the most of this sermon is give you four sub-points on how you can revere Jesus as God of the universe. I'm going to give you four ways that you can revere Jesus as God of the universe. And the first one's in the second half of verse 15. Look at the second half of verse 15. It says here that he is the firstborn. He's not only the image of the invisible God, but he's the firstborn of all creation. Now, here could be a problem here if you know anything about theology or maybe you understand where this could go wrong. When I say that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, uh, in your mind that strikes up what problem? That Jesus was born, right? That he was created, that God had created Christ, a good objection because when you have a child know you are your firstborn you walk around and say yes yeah, this is my firstborn you begot that firstborn you created that firstborn well we can't say well, we have a problem if we're going to say that jesus has been created that jesus wasn't always god right if he wasn't always god he was never god and so when we look at this we are we are left with a problem if we don't read the text clearly okay when it says that he is the firstborn of all creation it can mean two things right it can mean that you were born first or, like so many times in Scripture, it can mean something else, and it can mean this, and I'll show you. In this context, it means first in status or preeminence. When this means firstborn, what he's saying this, and like so many uh, Middle Eastern cultures, so many first century cultures, or even ancient Israel cultures, you had the firstborn was giving a whole lot of preeminence in the family. Right? Being born first gave you a lot of authority. You're, you had the most inheritance from your father. Right You were in control of the family when your father passed away. You were given an inheritance much greater than anyone else below you, Jeremy? You below him. So when he says "firstborn" here, he's not saying that, "Oh, Jesus was born before all of you guys. No, he's saying that he has been placed before all you guys, so he is greater than you. So when he's saying "firstborn," he's saying he is first in status. He is first in preeminence, that, in, that Christ in all things is more superior to you. More superior than me than anything that exists. And if you're like, okay, that sounds real preachy. Well, let me prove it to you. Flip over to Psalm 89. See, He wasn't born supreme. He was given supreme because he's always been. Psalm 89. You have God speaking of King David here prophetically. This is God speaking through the prophet and speaking about King David, and he says this in verse 26. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Look at verse 27 real, real closely. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. You see, you see something interesting about that? How in the world is God going to make someone firstborn if they weren't born first? How are they going to? King David wasn't even born first. He was the youngest of his brothers. But God said, I'm going to make him firstborn, and I'm going to make him the highest of the kings on the earth. What are we talking about here? We're not talking about birth order, we're talking about supremacy. We're not saying that Jesus was born and God had born him. What we're saying is God has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, has lifted him up and given him supreme status of all creation. Just like God's saying here, I'm going to make him the firstborn. He wasn't born first. He wasn't even the first king of Israel. Who was the first king of Israel? Saul, right? So like, you can't even, uh, chronologically, we see there's a problem here unless this word doesn't mean what at first glance it may seem like it means. We're going to see here that firstborn is not chronological, it's positional. You can see a lot of stories uh, like this. You can see Israel when he was about to die. Israel, Jacob, right? Israel, Jacob, when he was uh, talking to all his sons right before he died, his first son came up and his first son uh, slept with one of his concubines and defiled his home, and he says, You were my firstfruits. You were to get preeminence in all things. You were, you were going to get first status of all things. And right before he died, he said, but I'm taking that away from you. You no longer get those things. And so just being born first didn't give preeminence. Preeminence was bestowed. It was given. Okay? We can see it in Jacob and Esau. Who was born first? Esau. Who was given the birthright? Jacob. So again, we see here, chronological uh, birth does not matter here. It's the position that means much in being firstborn. And so here, when we say that he was firstborn, we're talking about his authority, his status, and his preeminence. And I say that because this is a subpoint number one. You need to recognize, if you want to revere Jesus as God of the universe, you need to recognize the significance of Christ's supremacy. You see, you may have a say if Jesus is your Savior. You, you might, right? You, you might, you have a say when you have to say, I repent of my sins and I trust in Christ. Right? You, can, you can choose to say that or not choose to say that. But what you cannot choose is Christ being your Lord, right? And this is the big problem in, in many Christian circles when they say, well, you know, it's one thing to accept Jesus as my Savior, but I don't have to right now accept him as Lord, right? That is a bad view of Scripture, If Jesus is your Savior, he's also your Lord. As a matter of fact, it doesn't matter if Jesus is your Savior or not. He is your Lord. He's the Lord of all people. If you want to acknowledge it or not, he is the Lord of all creation. And so it doesn't make any sense for a Christian to say, ah, he's my Savior, but he's not my Lord. I'm saying you have a problem in your view of who Christ is. And we're not going to have that problem because we're going to recognize the significance of Christ's supremacy is that he is also my Lord, that he is always my Lord. That he may be the Savior of some, but he's the Lord of all. Matthew 28, 18, jot that down. It says, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If I walk up to you and say, hey, guess what? All authority on heaven and earth, everybody has been given to me. Who are you coming to? Me. You going to anybody else? You, you ought not, because they're going to have to come to me. You might as well come to me. Okay. So we see already here, when we're talking about all authority, we're talking about all authority. Just like Paul says, all, 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 you see here, in Matthew 28:18, Jesus has all authority. Not some of it, not most of it, all of it. Now, one I want you to flip to, Philippians 2. Flip to Philippians 2, verses 9 and 10. It's Paul talking to the church in Philippi. And this is a great Christological verse for you to keep in mind as you're living for Christ, as you're revering him as God of the universe, and as you're recognizing the significance of Christ's supremacy, you're going to point to this verse first and foremost It says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That about does it, doesn't it? So if you have a knee and you're on heaven, you're in heaven or you're on earth or you're under the earth, that's probably 100% of all the knees that have ever existed are in one of those three places. And every one of those knees are going to bow at the name of Christ. At the name of who? Christ. Our Lord. Right? It's time that we see Jesus as more than a baby in a manger. Right? It's a more, he's more than just a man. This is the God, the supreme of the universe. See, I want you to think about it this way. And I know you can. some of you guys who want to object could object to this uh, only in the sense that, okay, this is man-made. And it is. It is man-made. History, a lot of our recollection of history is man-made. Dates and all those timelines are, are, are all man-made. But I want you to think for a moment, even in our, our, the revelation that we get to receive naturally and this revelation that we have even with time itself, is this, that the very day you were born is marked by the time that has passed since Jesus was on earth. I mean, have you thought about that? I mean, the, today... Right? What are we? We're in October 10th. October 10th. It's October 10th because it's marking the time since Jesus was on birth, or Jesus was here on earth, all the way to right this moment. Are we marking history according to Buddha or Muhammad? No, Jesus, right? The entire history is laid on the foundations of the life of christ what do you have you have history before christ and you have history after the death of christ even history itself is divided into two different places and you know who sits in the middle of history jesus you're talking about the supremacy of christ there's not a soul alive who does not say i was born on this date in regard to what what's that date in regard to well the life of christ of course so when you tell me that, the, that Jesus can be your Savior, but he's not your Lord, your date of your birth is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. History is about the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything that you can remember in dates and times is all placed in time and space in regard to where it stands from the life of Christ. I hope that does something to your worship. I hope that does something to the way you think about the significance of the supremacy of Christ. I'll give you another subpoint, and it's the beginning of verse 16. Look at verse 16. It says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, whether they're visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. I need you to know this morning that it was Christ who created Everything like everything that has ever been made is been made in Christ. I looked up some stats. Do you know that astronauts and astronomers and scientists have no idea how many stars are in the universe? They don't. They have none. You know Jesus knows them all. He created them, he named them. They're his. All of them. We don't know he does. He made every single one of them. Every atom that makes up your entire composition of your body Christ created. They're his. He made them. They're all His. And that's sub-point number two, is you need to regard all things as Jesus' creation. Every single thing that you see, every single thing you enjoy, every person you interact with, found its origins in Christ. And I, I want you to, to draw some application from this. I'm going to help you. Every single thing, the pen that you are writing with right now, found its atomic origin in Jesus Christ. Right? Right? The very eyeballs that you look out of right now were created and designed and manufactured by Jesus. Like, come on, there is nothing about you that is not his. And whether you want to acknowledge that right now or not is of no matter to me, because you're still his. I mean, if I want to walk around and say, my mom and my dad, they're not mine. Well, uh, my biological tests say that they are, right? I can't not say that they are not my parents. I may disown them, and you may disown God, but it doesn't change whose you are. We need to regard all things as Jesus' creation. Two verses, just jot them down, we want to flip to them. John 1, 3, which you were just there, jot down John 1, 3. It says this, that all things were made through him. There it is, all of them through him, all things were made. And without him was not anything made that was made. So if you're wondering what could have been made without Christ making it, here's your answer. Was not anything made that was made without him. Made all things. Another one, Psalm 24, 1 through 2. Psalm 21, 1 through 2 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Like the rivers don't even have a say so. Like every single thing that was ever made was made. And when the rivers changed flow, it was God rearranging the living room. Okay, I want you to see that every single thing that happens is his creation. He founded it, he established it, he made it. You need to regard all things as his creation. Now, third subpoint, look at verse 16, the rest of verse 16. All things were created through him and for him. This is, I think, one of the most important implications of this scripture that every single thing that exists was made for him. He didn't just make it, he didn't wind it up as a lot of deists say, he didn't just wind it up and let it go and say, go where you want, how you want, do what you want, and uh, you take care of yourself. He didn't wind it up and let it go as so many people, so many agnostics want to believe, so many people want to believe. No, no, he didn't wind it up and let it go, he wound it up for himself. He wound it up and, and he's over it because it pleases him to be within his creation, to be actively involved in those that he has created in his image. And you need to know, and it's sub-point number three, you need to, to realize that Jesus created everything for himself. Like, everything that has been created has been created for him, right? And I want you you to know this because if those of you who have made something, you've manufactured something or you've invented something or you discover, whatever you made, right, Even, even if it's a puzzle or a drawing, right, when you make it, you look at it and say, this is mine and I do with it what I please, right? I mean, even you as parents, when you allow your child to go buy something and you want to give them personal responsibility, you buy it and you say, this is yours, You get to do with it what you want. I hope that you do something good with it, but it's yours. Take it and do with it what you please. Okay, no one gave Jesus this, but this is still his attitude. It's his. He's going to do with it what he pleases, and it's his to have and to own and to purpose. And that means every single thing, and that includes you. You need to realize that Jesus created everything for himself. And your question might be this, well, what about the bad things? What about the bad things? You know, what about those bad things? You know, what about those? Well, I'll give you a verse. You can flip to this. Proverbs 16 4. Proverbs 16 4. We have to to look past Jesus as only this this man in the flesh that that just that was just when we look at oh, he was just all this good and kind. He said a lot of nice things. Like he also put people in their place. He also told people that before Abraham was I am. He also says, you know, there's a better thing here than, than Jonah, than the prophet of Jonah. There's better things here than the law. He's like, I'm the fulfillment of these things. And again, here in Proverbs 16:4, we have this. What about the bad things? The Lord has made everything for its purpose. That's good. That's a really good verse. It tells me, you know, he's got a purpose for me. Okay, comma, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Even the wicked for the day of trouble has been made for him. He makes it. He purposes it. And if you want to say, what could a bad thing do for the glory of Christ? And I want you to think in a moment in your life, and maybe this isn't you, but for the vast majority of us, this is us. You came to Christ in tragedy. You came to Christ and you came to know him. And and even if you were a Christian, you came to know him in his suffering because of your suffering. And so when we say that Christ has made everything for its purpose, and even the wicked things, you can't say Jesus didn't do that. Jesus did that. And there may be implications of that you don't want to come face to face with right now, but I promise you, if you would see Jesus as sovereign Lord of the universe, you're going to understand that every single thing that has happened, every death, every hurt, every pain, has been made for its purpose, and it fulfilled that purpose. And this is the God that we serve. His ways are higher than ours. His thoughts are far above our thoughts. But he has made everything and done everything for its purpose. And it's been for himself. Abraham Kuyper, if you know who that is. Abraham Kuyper said there is nothing, something like this. I kind of paraphrase it a bit. He said there is nothing in the whole universe that Jesus does not look at and say, mine. There is nothing in the universe that Jesus doesn't look at and he doesn't say, mine, 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 mine. And it's time for us Christians to make sure that we understand that truth, that everything that has ever existed, ever will exist, everything that has ever been is his. And he gets ownership of it. And there's nothing out of the ownership and possession of Christ. And I want you to know that the galaxies were made by him and they were made for him. You know, don't we love looking, at, looking in our binoculars or looking at our, our telescopes and seeing all these wonderful things? Well, so does Christ because they're his and they were for him. When you keep, when you think, oh, I, the, NASA discovers something that you didn't know, Jesus knew it was there and it's been for him since before, since, when, since he created it. But yeah, we just discovered it last year. And Jesus, like, I know that was there. I made it. And I've been loving it way longer than you've been loving it. That's all things. right? You need to know the universe was made by him and for him. You were made by him and for him. Think about the implications of that. You were made by him and for him, and yet most of our lives have been lived in opposition of him. Come on. We have a Lord. We have a sovereign Lord who created us, who did love us and then clothed himself with humanity. We'll get on that next week. But I think this week it's going to be imperative and important for us to exalt Christ in the right position he is. And you're going to see that salvation was such a little thing in comparison to all the things that Christ has done. Can Christ save me? Well, why don't we look at all the other things Christ did? Of course he can save you. Right? But so many times we we, we think that Christ is so small that barely he could save me. No, 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 no. Jesus can do more than save you. Jesus is, is, is capable of more than the salvation of the world. He is the progenitor of the world. He created the universe. Final subpoint, verse 17, the beginning of it. And it says in verse 17 that he is before all things. There's two words they are firstborn up in verse 15, and in verse 17, before. Right? These are the, both of the, the root to these Greek words, you know the root, the beginning of it, right? Or proto. You know the word proto because we use, in the English language, the word prototype, right? Prototype is the first, the first thing, right? It is the first and foremost first place. And these words are describing the proto of Christ, that he is before, that he is exalted, that he is the foremost. And so to say that this, that he is before all things, can mean, means two things. It means two things. It's talking about his position and his ontology, right? how he exists. right? We understand that not only is Christ positionally before all things, but ex- existentially he is before all things. right? That he is both above all things and he is both before all things. That there is nothing that was created, not that he was created, but there is nothing that was before him other than him. okay? And there is nothing above him but him. So he is all of the, the guards around time and space and matter and everything. It's all boxed in by Christ. And I'll tell you why. Because you're, you, you're going to ask the question, well, didn't God, didn't, didn't God the one who did, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth? Not in the beginning, the Lord Jesus created the heavens and the earth? Well, go to Genesis <clears> 1.26. <throat> the very beginning. <clears throat> you want to know how things shook out? Go to the beginning. Genesis 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And if you were like me the first time you read this, you start looking around like, what do you mean our? You've just been saying you've been doing this the whole time. And then we get to verse 26, and then there's other people in the room? Or the, the angels? Well, I don't know, because the angels aren't God. And if we're making them in our image, after our likeness, we're not talking about angels here. We're talking about something else. And that unfolds itself throughout scripture, throughout scriptural history in the Old Testament when we say things like uh, you know, when you look at the book of Daniel and you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're in this fiery furnace and they look in there and they're like, there is one like the son of man in there. And they're not saying son of man in regard to, he's like, you know, my son that I'm going to have someday. He's not saying son of man. They're saying son of man like Daniel 7 when it says a son of man is going to come and he is going to rule and he's going to conquer and he's going to be like the ancient of days, and he's going to come and he's going to rule the whole world. That's the son of man. It's, it's prophetic. It's a prophetic language. And that's why when Jesus says he calls himself more than anything in, in the New Testament, the son of man. And he's not trying to relate to you and me as people. He's trying to let you know he's the son of man that they prophesied about, who's going to come and rule and to reign and be the Lord of the universe. That's the Lord of God that we're talking about, and that's the same Lord God who was there in the beginning when God said, let us make man in our image. He's saying, we need to make man in the image of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. That's the us that we're talking about in Genesis 1. <clears throat> you want to see that he was also pre-existing in another verse. Uh, jot down Micah 5.2. You can go back there later, but just jot it down. Micah 5.2. Micah five two says, But you, O Bethlehem, who were too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who's to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Okay, you read that scripture during Christmas, don't you? Why do you read that verse during Christmas? Because it was the foretelling of the coming, the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And from what we see here, we understand that his coming forth is from old and from the ancient of days. Well, unless he's coming from a crypt or a grave... This thing, this being, was alive and doing well. He wasn't the this, this skeleton that we took out of the grave from ancient of days and brought him here to say, well, here he is. He's not doing great, but he's, been, he's old, right? No, that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about this God who's been from ancient of days is coming forth, and he's going to be ruler in Israel. We can get into a lot more of prophecy. Well, Jesus didn't come as ruler. No, but when he comes back in his second coming, he's going to come as ruler. He came as a servant king to save us from our sins. When he comes back, he's going to be coming as the ruler of Israel and all the world. And that's why it's important and imperative for you and I to see that now and not be foolish in our own minds and our own sight to get to this point in our life where we never repent of our sins and trust in Christ. And we're going to be just like the store manager when Jesus comes back to rule and to reign. We're going to be like, ah, that, that's him? Like, I, I did. I, you know, that's what you're going to look like. You're going to get fired. Literally, fired, okay? All right. All right, we're all paying attention. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Right, you need to and you need to understand, I want you to have a big view of God, right? This is our whole hope and praise you have a big view of God. And what I want you to understand is Jesus, right, was more than a created solve, a creative a creative issue for our salvation. You know what I'm saying? A lot of people, if you ask them, hey, what was Jesus for? Well he was created to save me from my sins. False. Jesus was not created to save you from your sins. Jesus was pre-existing. He's always been. Right? He wasn't plan B. Right? There wasn't like, oh, well, everything was going well until you guys then messed it up. Then, you know, then God made Jesus. No, false. Jesus is God. He's always been. He's pre-existing. And it has always been the plan. It's always been God's plan to send him forth to be ruler in Israel, who's coming forth is from the ancient of days. It's always been God's plan. Nothing escaped God's grasp, his foresight. He knew. And I I need you to understand that you can't think of him just as a creation to solve my problem. You can't think of Jesus as God the Father's errand boy. Right? We we realize that, that, that. That Jesus wasn't just the guy carrying the dirty laundry on earth because God didn't want to come down here. Jesus said, it was God's will to send me, and I came. And it was my will to do the Father's will. We both, this is our desire, this is what we want, and I submit myself to that will, not because he's less than God, because he is God, and they're the same essence. And although they have separate wills, they have their will in conformity with one another because they're all God, and they want the same thing. You see, we can't look at Jesus as the errand boy of God the Father. And finally, you can't look at him as a baby in a manger. Right? And I think that is one of the biggest problems uh, that we find in our current society that if we can keep Jesus in the cradle, we don't have to acknowledge him as Lord. Because if he's a baby, he doesn't have dominion and authority over me. Well, let me tell you something, he's not a baby. He was a baby for the shortest time ever when it comes to the breadth and the scope and the sequence of his entire existence. There was nothing that he was the least amount of time than a baby. That, that's like what he was, the least amount of his existence was a baby. But in eternity past, eternity present, and eternity future, he is the Lord, sovereign God of the universe. And you can't look at him like a baby because he's not a baby. It should humble you that he came as a baby because of all these things. See, I I want you to know that Jesus is more than these things. As a matter of fact, I want you to look at the end of verse 17. And it describes exactly how necessary Jesus is for the fabric of the universe. Second half of verse 17 And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I want you to think for a moment right now that your ligaments and your bones and your cartilage, the very molecular makeup of your entire body, is held together by Jesus. And the moment that Jesus says, I'm done, that's all going to fall apart. Like Jesus holds the key to your life and your death. Jesus holds the keys of Hades. Jesus owns everything, and he holds it all together. You think gravity is holding the universe together? You think you think gravity is h- holding the Milky Way galaxy together so everything will rotate perfectly and the sun will rise perfect and the moon will rise perfect and the moon will be just close enough to shed enough light on the earth to keep the tides from killing us all and you think the sun is just far enough away not to burn us alive but just close enough to keep us warm? You think that's gravity? That's called Jesus. Okay? And I want you to see because scientists have been for since they have been able to discover space, even since before the ancient of times, they have been trying to figure out, could there be life in any other place, and they've had thousands of years to try to figure it out, and they haven't, because they're not, because Jesus created us for his good purpose, and for his good will, we were made in his image, and he has us here for a purpose, and he wants to use us, and he wants to, he wants to uh, have pleasure in our existence, and he holds all of this stuff together. Like, I want you guys to see that that he keeps the universe connected. And here's how I say it in the last point, point number two, is that you need to have confidence in Jesus' ultimate power. And this is why I use the word universe and gravity because it's, it's secular science and secular humanism and secular just anything, just secular blank, that always wants to put a cause to Christ, right? They always want to replace Christ with a cause, right? If it's gravity, it doesn't have to be Christ, right? If it's time, it doesn't have to be creation, Right? If I, can, if, I can, if I can separate the world by billions and billions of years, I don't have to figure out that, yeah, a tree could be created instantaneously by God, but for a tree to be created over history out of nothing, it would take billions and billions of years. And as more complex they see the universe and creation and us, they have to keep making uh, the time longer. Have you noticed that? When you were in school, the world was only 13 billion years old, and now it's like hundreds of billions of years old. Do you want to know why? Because they're like... <laughs> You're right. That's a lot more complex than what we thought. I guess we're going to add a couple billion years to the world. No, it's called Jesus. And what what, what the world wants to do is take Jesus out and try to plug in all these things that don't fit. And I'm just trying to tell you, if you keep doing that in your own life, trying to plug in all these things that don't fit and you don't put Jesus in the middle of it, your life isn't going to make sense. Just like when your kids come home with homework and they're like, mom, did you know a hundred billion years ago the world was created? And you're going to say, no, that doesn't make no sense. Okay, But there's a lot of things in your own life that don't make sense, like the way that you live in your marriage, the way that you parent your kids, the way that you don't even acknowledge Christ, his own existence in your life from one day to the next. Those things don't make sense when we see him as the ultimate power and creator in our universe, and you won't even acknowledge him. I'm not just saying you. Okay, i got fingers pointing back too, right? I mean, we have got to do a better job I mean, we have got to be people who see him as supreme Lord of the universe. Because I'm going to tell you, when you do that, and we're going to talk a lot about next week about him being our Savior, in case you don't want to come back next week because you say, he didn't even talk about him being my Savior. Well, We'll talk about that when it comes up in the text next week. But this week, we need to get it right with him being our Lord. And we need to have confidence. And this is the confidence that we can have in Christ Jesus or the confidence that we can have for our salvation is wrapped up into who he is, right? And I think that is a big problem why people always question their salvation, because they don't see who he is, right? If he's the man from Galilee and he made all these big promises that he's the great I am, and then he got murdered and hung on a cross and thrown into a grave, and then we don't know if he either arose or if somebody stole him out of that grave. uh, We don't know. So I'm just hoping that he can save me. I'm hoping what he said was true. Well, this morning, what we're going to know is true that he is so much more than the man who died on a cross, that he is the creator and sustainer of the universe. So can he save me? That's easy stuff, right? It costs a lot. It is no joke. But it is well within the means and the authority and the power of Christ to save people for himself. Now, I want you to have confidence in the ultimate power. I want you to flip over to one more scripture. Hebrews 1.3. You want to know the ultimate power of Christ? You want to know how you can have confidence in the ultimate power of Christ? You don't have to go any further than Hebrews 1.3. It says this. That he is the radiance of the glory of God. And he is the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. You can't even hold up your personal life. And we have a God who upholds the universe by the word of his power. You see, if Jesus is God, then he can heal my marriage. He can bestow salvation to my children. right? He can give me strength in my own suffering. Right, he can. He, if I'm single in here, he he's very within his realm of authority and power and dominion to give me a spouse. Right, if he's if he's God, he can make my spouse. Uh, he can conform my spouse into his image. He can draw my spouse into salvation. He can he can do all things. If You have a bad coworker, God can change that. He can give you the power and the strength to withstand that. He can give you the hope. In security to withstand the bad staff that you may have or the people that you want to change. Well, guess what? We have a God of the universe. And you want to take it to Him? He's all-powerful, and will do all things according to His will that we ask of Him. It's the kind of God we serve. Because when we see Him for who He is, we can trust in His power, we can trust in His authority, we can trust in His plan for you, and not only for you, and this is something you all need to hear, you can trust His plan for all of history. So turn off the news, And open your Bible. Because he's got a plan for all of history. And he's bringing it to culmination. And if you would just read about who he is. You're going to have a lot more confidence in what he's doing. In this world. Pray with me. God we. Confess that we do not look at you. The way that we ought. That we look at you so much as just of uh, that, that your incarnation, that, that all of our life revolves around you being a man and you being like us. And God, we just forget how much you are just not like us. We forget that you are not us. God, and I just pray that this morning that we just see that you are the Lord of the universe. You uphold the universe by the power of your very word that in you and by you everything came into existence and everything that exists was created by you, through you, and for you. God, that that you are in the very image and the exact imprint of the nature of God and you have been brought here, been clothed in humanity to manifest God to the world. God, I just pray that we don't close our ears and our hearts and our minds to this, that you are Lord of all God, and I just pray that anyone in here, even if they aren't saved, that we just understand that you are Lord of all, the saved and the unsaved, that there is, no, there is no person outside the Lordship of Christ. And I pray that we see that and that many would come this morning to know you because they realize that there is no escaping the, the rule and the reign of Christ. There is only to submit under it either now or for eternity. And I just pray that we see the necessity of that truth this morning. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.